Welcome to the podcast of Woburn Baptist Church. We hope that you enjoy listening to the sermons and other audio provided by us. Feel free to share what you find here, and we hope that it will be beneficial to you as you seek to know and follow Christ. Matthew chapter 5, we will, begin, we will be continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be looking at... Uh, Verses 17 through 20 today. The song that we just looked at, it was about uh, what discipleship is. It's about asking God to take our lives and just let it be whatever He would want to make it. That our lives are no longer our own, but they're His. So what does it mean to be a disciple? Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount. It says in the context, he's he's teaching to his disciples. What does it mean to be a disciple? And I don't mean just the disciples back then, his 12 men that walked around with him. But what does it mean to be a disciple today? Now, first thing I want to do, I want to make sure I'm clear here. There's not a difference between being a Christian and being a disciple. Every Christian, if you have been born again, if you have been forgiven of your sins, then you are a disciple of Jesus. There isn't a, a, some might want to try to make, there's two categories, like when you first trust Jesus and you experience the forgiving of, forgiveness of sins is, is one step, and then later on you become a disciple. That's for really committed Christians. That's not the way the Bible presents it. Uh, the, the, the evidence I see for that is in the Great Commission. The Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. Now, of course, part of what it means to follow the Great Commission is to preach the gospel so that people can be saved. But that's not what the Great Commission is all about. The Great Commission is about making disciples. When we preach the gospel and people are saved, they become a disciple. And and we're not to leave them there. As if as if just becoming a Christian is enough. No, Jesus says, whenever someone becomes a disciple, we're supposed to baptize them. It's, the Great Commission is one of the reasons why Baptists believe in believers' baptism. We don't baptize infants, but we believe we baptize disciples alone because it's part of the Great Commission. And then we teach them everything that He has commanded. Everything. All of Scripture. All of His teachings. You know, the Old Testament and the New Testament alike are are part of Jesus' teachings. Paul talks about the Scriptures being inspired by the Spirit of Christ. Actually, I think it's Peter that says that. It's inspired by the Spirit of Christ. So, whether it's the red letters you see in your Bible, or whether it's Paul or whether it's the Old Testament, it's all coming from Jesus. 
So to be a disciple, we've got to be learning the Bible. We've got to be learning all of the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. All of it. Not just our favorite parts. Not just the red letters. Jesus commands that we teach, He teaches everything that He has commanded. You want to be a disciple? You want to follow Jesus? You know, some passages of Scripture are like the one we had last week. Last week, we looked at a passage that talked about doing good works so that others would glorify God. You know, we see a passage like that and it tells us what to do. We get excited about that. We, we like those passages. And we also like those passages that, where Jesus performs a miracle. We see how amazing Jesus was. We see how Jesus did things that nobody else could do. And we are just it moved to worship Him. Amen. You know, a passage like we're, the one we're looking at today might not be quite so popular. Because it's telling us not what to do. It's not saying something that uh, is talking about how, how great of a thing that Jesus did and moving us to worship Him. No, it's telling us how to think. We don't like that sometimes because we think we think all right. You want to tell me what to think? Yeah. You want to tell me what to think? You know, Romans says we'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're to be more and more conformed to the image of Christ, not only in our deeds, but in the way we think, in our minds. And here Jesus tells us what we're to think about the Old Testament. We'll look at uh, our passage, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. To be a disciple, we can't throw away the words of Jesus. We have to embrace what Jesus said. And if, if Jesus says this about the Old Testament, then this is what we should think about the Old Testament. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes, that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a wonderful word of life. Lord, your word has been established in heaven forever, just as... Melanie read from Psalm 119. Lord, your word does teach us the way of life, and that is through you. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, give us ears to hear, because without them we will be stubborn, and we will resist what you have to say. Give us eyes to see that we will feel your glory. 
Lord, help me to preach this text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You know, if Jesus was saying this, it probably means that someone in his day thought that that's what he came to do. He was correcting somebody's false view about the law and the prophets. You know, a lot of people, they were mad at Jesus. They were upset with Jesus. They, they wanted to try to kill Jesus. Things like, you know, he, he did things on the Sabbath and people accused him of breaking the Sabbath. And the fact that Jesus claimed to be God himself, that was the big one where, where people wanted to kill him about Well, Jesus was saying, don't think that I've come to to throw away everything that you already had in the Law and the Prophets. No, I've come to fulfill it. You know, it's always been a temptation among Gentile Christians, those of us who who are not from a Jewish background, to want to minimize the Old Testament. We've got our New Testament, that's what we need. That's, you know, I've even, I've even heard of a church that in its, in its statement of faith said that they, they thought that the New Testament was the authority for, um, for our faith and practice. Well, it's only half right. The New Testament and the Old Testament. The whole Bible is Christian scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, from the very beginning, uh, in the very second century, uh, within a hundred years after Jesus' crucifixion, there was a, a heretic by the name of Marcion. Uh, Marcion was an early, he was a part of the early church within that first hundred years. And, and he tried to teach people that uh, the, the Old Testament was just too Jewish. That there, that there was a difference between the God of the Old Testament and the Father of Jesus. And so he dispensed with all of the Old Testament and he, he even cut out parts of the New Testament that he thought were too Jewish. He was uh, condemned as a heretic. But that's often been our temptation as Gentile Christians. We, we, we think all we need is the New Testament. Well, without the Old Testament, we can't understand the New Testament. If we don't have the Old Testament, we will be led astray in many different directions because we don't understand the background of what Jesus was saying. And here's what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to, the, to abolish the law and the prophets. Now what is he talking about when he's talking about the law and the prophets? We could easily be led astray here and think, well, he's talking about the moral law. Don't, don't think that I've come to set everyone free from the law of, of rules, but, but to fulfill it. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the law and the prophets, these two parts of the Hebrew Scripture. The, the Hebrew Scripture, the Hebrew Bible is made up of three parts. The law, the prophets, and the writings. What Jesus was talking about here when he mentions the law and the prophets is this, these two parts of what makes up the whole of Scripture for, for Jesus' day. The law and the prophets. The law was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was the Torah, the law. That's what Jesus is talking about there. He's not just talking about the rules in it. 
He's talking about all of it. He's talking about the story of creation. He's talking about the story of Noah and the flood. He's talking about the story of Abraham. He's talking about the story of Jacob and Esau and Joseph. All of those things in Genesis. And and how God had promised a seed, a descendant of Eve, who would one day come and crush the serpent's head. And this story that unfolds about humanity... And and how God was calling a people to Himself in Abraham. And we can see even by the end of the book of Genesis that He's narrowing things down to the tribe of Judah. And then the prophets. What is it talking about in the prophets here? Now when we think about the prophets, usually what we think about are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, all of those writing prophets who we have what they said written down in a book like that. But you know what else is the prophets and what's included in the prophets? Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Those were all the former prophets. We see some of those prophets like Elijah and Elisha and other prophets that are named in those things. But we have to remember who wrote those things. They were prophets who wrote Joshua through Kings. Those, that's why they're called the former prophets. We think of them as a history book where we go to it and we learn what happened between the end of uh, Moses' life and the exile. We, if, we, if we look at it as a history book, we're missing the point. Every story in there was a sermon It was meant as a prophecy. It was to show something about God, and it was to show something about God's plan. Just think about this. At the beginning, in in Samuel, God promises David that there will be someone who's a seed, a descendant, who will sit on, a son of David, who will sit on a throne forever. That's continuing the promises that we saw in Genesis through Deuteronomy. And later on, as you continue to see the story unfold, you see good kings and you see bad kings. And and you see there's comments on those things where uh, if there's a good king, he's compared back to David. If there's a bad king, he says, and he walked in the the pattern of his his, uh, father Jeroboam or something like that. He's commenting on how it was a bad king and how how God brought discipline on them. But ultimately, you come around to the end of those books and how God sends His people into exile and the king, the one who is carrying that messianic seed, that one who, you know, David was supposed to have a son who would sit on the throne forever and at the end of the book, you see the last king in the line taken off to Babylon. In chains. And the prophets, they're all written to give us hope. Even though you have seen God discipline His people, and even though God looks like it's impossible for Him to keep His promise, you see in Isaiah and the other prophets, God will keep His promises. He will fulfill His promise. There will be a branch of David, the root of Jesse. That's David's father. 
who will rise and who will be the Messiah. So when Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. He's saying, don't think that I have come to throw out the Old Testament. No, I'm here to fulfill the Old Testament. I'm here because I'm the one who the Old Testament was all about. From Genesis 3, that promised seed of the woman, all the way to the end, all the way to the time when they return back from the exile, when they build the walls of Jerusalem again and the the old men that were there in town, they, they weep and you can't tell if the weeping is weeping for joy or if it's weeping out of sadness because although they rebuild the the temple, although they rebuild the wall, it's nothing compared to what they'd seen before. And they were still a waiting and a longing. And you see at the end of Malachi, this promise, there was someone who was going to come. And before that great and terrible day of the Lord, someone was going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah who would be John the Baptist to make way a way ready for the Lord. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. And Jesus says, I haven't come to dispense with that. I've come to fulfill it. If we want to be disciples of Jesus, if we want to follow Jesus, we need to accept the Old Testament as Christian Scripture. The next passage, next verse Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus here is echoing what Melanie read earlier. God, the Lord has established His Word in heaven forever. Nothing is going to change until heaven and earth pass away, Jesus says. It's never going to happen. God's law will remain forever. He's talking about the Old Testament. He says, not an iota. The iota in Greek was the, uh, the smallest letter of the alphabet. It was a, a, like the letter I, but you don't put a dot at the top of it. It was just, just like the little, little letter I, and it was the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. And in the, the, the dot, we can just imagine that. That's like the dot at the top of our I, or whatever other letter. Not even one of those small, not the lo, smallest letter, not even the smallest part of a letter is going to pass away. Until all is accomplished. God's word stands forever. Jesus held a view of the Bible of the Old Testament in which every word was important. Every single word was important. Not one single jot or tittle in some translations it says. Not single one, not one little letter, not one little smallest part of a letter will pass away. Now, 
I believe the Bible was, was uh, inspired in what, what, the, the, what is called the verbal plenary inspiration. I believe every word, every single word was inspired by God. There are some who, who, who think maybe God inspired just the thoughts and, and that the, the writers were, were free to do with whatever, put that in whatever way that he wanted to. Um, you know, I, I, I believe I have friends that may hold similar positions, but I, I, I can't do that. When, when Jesus says, not a single jot or tittle, not a single iota, not a single dot will, will pass away until all is, is fulfilled. I think Jesus held a view that even, even those small parts of the language were important. That's why, I try, that's why I study the original languages to the best of my ability. That's why I think it's important that when we study the Scripture, now I'm saying for study, we should use as literal of a, tra- literal of a translation as we can handle Now, there are purposes for using something else. I think for our own devotional time, even for reading in public worship, I think it's okay to use those those more thought-for-thought translations to give us a fresh feel for things. But when you want to study the Bible, when you want to know what does it say, I recommend using a literal translation because of what Jesus says here. Not a jot or a tittle. Not a letter, not even the smallest part of a letter will pass away until all is fulfilled. Jesus had a very high view of the Scriptures of the Old Testament. Verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now here I think Jesus does turn and He starts to talk about some of the moral component of the law. Those commandments that we see in the Old Testament. You shall not kill. You shall not murder. You shall have no other gods before Me. He does start to turn to those commandments here. There has been, within Christianity, a temptation towards what's called antinomianism. That anti, we use that word, that that prefix in our language today, it means against. And uh, nomianism, that's the law. So antinomianism means against the law. It means, you know, Jesus has, has put away with the law, and we are now living free in Christ, and we can basically do anything we want to, because we're all forgiven for anything anyway. Jesus here warns against an antinomian view that says we can just do without what the Old Testament teaches about morals and ethics. Now we have to understand it rightly. There are some things in which Jesus fulfilled them and we no longer have to practice them. There were some things that were for the Jews only. How about eating shellfish or catfish or pork? Those things were for the Jewish people. They were not for all people. And the early church had a big uh, discussion about that. And Paul 
And the early church decided, no, do not require the Gentiles who trust in Jesus to follow all those Old Testament regulations that the Jews alone were supposed to practice. Like the dietary rules and things like that. Well, and then there's the ceremonial laws. Do we still sacrifice lambs and goats and things like that? Well, no. Because Jesus fulfilled it in that sense. Jesus fulfilled them. That sacrifice of a lamb each year on the Day of Atonement where the sins of the people would go on to that lamb and be slaughtered, sacrificed for the people. That was, that was pointing forward all along to the perfect spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, who would come, who is God and man, who would come and He would die as a sacrifice for us. So a lot of those ceremonial aspects, they were all pointing forth. So when Jesus fulfilled them, there's no reason to continue on on those things. Because they, they have come to their fulfillment. But those moral components, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, all of those types of things. The moral law, Jesus says, do not set that aside. I've come to fulfill those things. And the next several passages, he talks about those, and he, he not only doesn't relax them, he ratchets them up. He makes them even more clear. You've heard it said, do not commit murder. Jesus says, don't call your brother a fool. You're guilty of hellfire. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Don't look at a woman with lust in your heart. Jesus doesn't dispense with the law. He ratchets it up. He makes it even more strict. He shows how we are all laid bare and all of us are guilty. None of us can say we're perfect. None of us can say that we have followed the law. Jesus says there in verse... 19, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We are to try to live a life of holiness, to pursue a life of following Jesus, not that we obey the law to earn salvation, But we, we do seek to pursue that holiness. We do seek to pursue a life like Jesus. But in the verse 20, it says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's going to be hard. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees, when we, we hear that today and we think, oh, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the bad guys. They were the ones who killed Jesus, right? Well, they were fine, upright, moral people. They were people who studied the Bible. They were people who spent their lives studying the Bible and memorizing the Bible. They were the kind of people you'd want to leave your kids with when you go on vacation. <laughs> they were... Moral people. And yet Jesus says, unless your righteousness 
exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, we're all guilty. How can we possibly have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees? I want to turn to John chapter 5. Jesus makes a comment there. You know, the, the Jesus' opponents, they missed the point about the Old Testament. They read the Bible. They searched the Scriptures. Oops. With blind eyes. You have to tape that later. They said... He says to his opponents, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Pharisees and the scribes, they did. They searched the Scriptures. They thought they would have life in them. And they were half right. But they read the Bible and they searched the Scriptures with blind eyes. They didn't see that the whole Old Testament was about Jesus. They they read the Old Testament, they read the Bible as if it was all about rules. As if it was all about being righteous. And they missed Jesus. Let us not do that. The Old Testament is about Jesus. So back to this. Unless our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the the scribes and the Pharisees, we won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you want to experience forgiveness of sins? Do you want to be born again? Do you want to have Jesus living in you? Do you want to have a clean conscience? Jesus says, you have to have righteousness that's better than the scribes and the Pharisees. Now at first blush, that should make us shake. It should make us tremble. Because none of us do. On our own. But Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. Every jot and tittle of the law. He perfectly fulfilled all righteousness. He lived a sinless life from birth up to the age where He was crucified. So that when we trust in Him, when we become followers of Jesus, when we are born again, He puts His righteousness in us. You cannot go to heaven on your own righteousness. Because Jesus says here, you've got to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. You cannot go to heaven on your own righteousness. You have to have Jesus' righteousness. And He offers it freely. All we do is believe. Believe that He died for us. He opens it up all the way. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you want to know you'll be in the kingdom of heaven? Do you want to know you will have experienced the the forgiveness of sins, a clean conscience, 
being brought into the family of God. Trust in Jesus. Stop trying to work and make yourself a good person and be respected by others. Throw yourself down at His feet and accept His gift to you. The righteousness of Jesus imputed to you, counted to you. Because we'll never be good enough on our own. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Thank you for listening to this message from Woburn Baptist Church. For more information, please visit us at www.wilburnbaptistchurch.org or you can also like us on Facebook.